Hey guys, it's Briars. Just want to tell you what's going on down at uh, Meltdown Comics in Hollywood. We got Meltthology. Meltthology is a monthly comics jam at Meltdown every third Tuesday of the month. Here's how it works. Show up at the Melt at 7 p.m. and draw a page of whatever you want. At 9.30 p.m. we'll collect all of the art and $3 for printing costs. When you come to the next month's comics jam, you'll get a zine with everyone's contributions inside. There is no set theme, and all skill levels are welcome. Last but not least, Meltthology contributors get 10% off their Meltdown purchase on the night of the event. Go to at Meltthology on Twitter or Facebook if you have any specific questions. Ask for Chuck, and that is at Melt underscore Thology. Hello and welcome to Pod Sequentialism with Matt Kennedy. I am Matt Kennedy, and my guest today is another great friend, Tom Neely. And Tom Neely is an Ignatz Award-winning um, cartoonist who is one of the principal members of Igloo Tornado, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Um, we've also featured his his fine art on the walls at La Luz de Jesus Gallery, and he is now currently the um, the penciler of. The image book, The Humans, which is a phenomenal book. And um, because he's got a lot of um, experience working in the successful end of the independent publishing world, but the not the um, not the self-publishing world necessarily, but at that level where things are being published by other other companies, it's it's interesting to get a kind of perspective about how the industry has changed. And um, and it's also a good idea to get kind of a gist of what the numbers are like um, these days in, in the business. But um, before we get all of that, I want um, to welcome to the program Tom Neely. Hi. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Uh, your name came up. Um, I did a podcast recently with um, with Kevin Smith on Fat Man on Batman, oh, yeah. which will probably have aired by the time this airs. Yep. And um, and I, he had not heard of Henry and Glenn. Oh, yeah. And I explained to him, I was like, oh, you know, it's about this fictional romance between, you know, Henry Rollins and, and, and Glenn Danzig. And he was like, oh, my God. Like, <laughs> it, it is probably immediately became his property. And I'm sure he absolutely loves it. But um, so I guess we should probably talk about that first, even though it's not first in the canon. Sure. Um, how did it come about? Uh, it, and for the uninitiated, <laughs> <laughs> Henry, Henry and Glenn or Henry Loves Glenn. Um, is a comic book about the fictional um, romantic relationship between two beloved punk rock icons, and go. <laughs> yeah, so uh, basically it kind of fell out of a beer bottle one night uh, between me and my three artist friends in the Igloo Tornado. We were like sort of an artist fraternity. We'd get together and just talk to each other about what we were working on and stuff, and we were having beers and drawing on napkins and stuff one night, and uh, my friend Jen Stevens said... Uh, who also is shown in your gallery here. Yep, Jen Stevens was a co-worker um, of mine. He uh, he said, there should be something that's sort of like Tom of Finland, but with Henry Rollins and Glenn Danzig. And I was like, all right, we're going to do that. <laughs> High concept so, it, right off the bat. It kind of like morphed into something else, you know, other than like Tom of Finland, but that was kind of like the initial spirit of it was, was to uh, just put these two macho punks together in the same room and see what happens. And you guys are... Big fans of the Misfits and big fans of Black Flag. I was, yeah, definitely, and, and Jen, and I think the other two members, Scott and Levon, were a little less uh, into them. But, but yeah, we were. I mean, definitely, my 
the Misfits was one of the first bands that I like discovered on my own without the help of my bro- older brother, and, and yeah. like you know, it's very important to me growing up. So, uh, and Rollins too later on. But yeah, I've always been a big fan. So it's uh, it's weird that my career uh, hit, hit it, I got its biggest hit out of me making fun of one of my idols, but uh, and he now hates me. But <laughs> right, right, you know the. Um... But so it goes. <laughs> We are recording this right down the street, like literally yep. right down the street from um, Glenn Danzig's house, and um, where I don't think he lives there anymore, but I know it's the office for Verotic, and I know Craig, Crazy Craig, can't he see, uh, mm-hmm. who is his um, kind of his his man Friday, oh yeah, um, who does everything for for Verotic, is frequently there, and yeah, I've I've gotten the gist, and I know you've heard personally. That um, that Glenn is not a fan of the book. No, and it always surprised me because I I thought that you know if he had embraced it, if he had been like, oh yeah, this is hilarious, that um, it might have given him that second bump that Holland Oates clearly got <laughs> from yeah. this book. Now Holland Oates are also characters in Henry and Glenn, right? And they play the devil worshiping next door neighbors right. of Henry and Glenn. Yeah. So, yeah, the way I kind of approached it was, like, sort of like this weird, like, sitcom-y kind of universe, like, mm-hmm. if they lived next door to each other. and But we were, like, initially we were just, like, literally just doodling on bar napkins to amuse each other mm-hmm. uh, before we'd ever put a zine out or even thought about that. And one day when everybody was drawing Henry and Glenn, uh, Scott Nobles drew um, Hall and Oates on one of bar napkins. Like, and I remember it immediately. There was this rumor in the 80s that they were secretly satanic. And uh, so I was like, well, we're going to make them their next door neighbors and their Satanists. Mm-hmm. And that's where that was just like as simple as that. <laughs> and and they, uh, they've it just talked worked. about it. Like, I, I believe yeah. that um, Daryl Hall has talked about the fact that he he fully credits like the kind of <laughs> hipster popularity of of Henry and Glenn. Really? For like, I haven't heard that. But <laughs> for for bouncing um, cool. more interest over into that camp, and that it became that there was a lot of other things too that were happening, and very much in Silver Lake, because hmm. you live not so far from here. Yeah, that order. And um, and the guys, there, there was a band. It might have been the Double X that did like a whole cover record of Hollow Note songs, hmm. like right around the same time that you guys yeah. were doing this. And it seemed like there was this weird Silver Lake zeitgeist. About Holland Oats that that was happening without without getting so far afield of what we're what we usually talk about, but um, then it becomes a thing. I mean, this becomes like a legitimate like you have a hit on your hands. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I mean, we initially just uh, published it as a little Xerox scene, and then it got picked up by Microcos- Microcosm Publishing out of Portland, and became a more substantial book. And then that thing was like the biggest hit I'd ever made. And it, and it all kind of happened outside of the comics world because it's kind of a weird zine book. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of rough around the edges and more punk rock than a standard comic book. Definitely a little bit more but, maximum um, rock and roll. Yeah. Um, you know, so than... it, it really took off in like indie bookstores and record stores yeah. and like stuff like that around the country. And and uh, so um, I, I hadn't really, I've never really been one to like, I was never really into the idea of doing a follow-up to it. Right. But when I met the artist Ed Luce, um, who does a comic book called Lovable Oaf, um, he uh, he fell in love with the book, the idea, and he was like, if you ever do more, I'd love to be a part of it. And so 
when my publisher asked me, like, you know, we'd, we should do a sequel, I wanted to approach it a different way, so I I opened it up to a lot more artists. So mm-hmm. the second book, Henry England, Forever and Ever, has about 50 different artists in it, all doing, like, various short stories and different things. But mm-hmm. just let the, the universe go crazy. <laughs> yeah. And you found yourself in the inenviable position of being on a flight. Oh, yeah. <laughs> next to... Uh, London May, the former... Uh, drummer of Sam Hain, or one-time drummer of Sam Hain, I think. And Which was the band with... that Glenn was in between the Misfits and Janzig, and he frequently does Sam Hain reunions. Right, yeah. Yeah, Obviously I think he was currently no doing that. To the Misfits. Uh, yeah, so, uh, yeah, I ended up on a flight, I think, from Baltimore to L.A., uh, sitting right next to him. He, he actually chose to sit next to me. It was a Southwest Airlines flight where you get to choose your own seats. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, it was really, it was an interesting... I, I didn't recognize him at first, but um, I heard him talking to the girl next to him, and he mentioned he was a drummer, so I was just, like, making small talk, asked him what band he was in, and he was like, oh, this band you may have heard of, like, Sam Hain. I was like, what? Yeah. <laughs> I was like, first, okay, band member actually pronounced it the wrong way, the way that everybody pronounces it, but yeah. but, uh, <laughs> but then I was like, I can't believe it. So then we started talking, and he and uh, he was surprised I was a fan and everything, we were talking about that, and then... And then he asked me if I was in a band or something. I was like, no, I do I do comic books. He was like, oh, I love comic books. What do you do? <laughs> and then so, you're like, uh, Well, first I told him, first I told him every other book I've done. Right. <laughs> and then I was like, uh, I was like, and there's this one book you may have heard of, Henry England Forever. And he went from like smiling and thinking I was like a cool dude next to him on the plane to like he put his head in his hands for like 30 seconds and I was just like, okay, this guy's about to punch me or yeah. <laughs> something. But but he sat up and he was like, all right, all things happen for a reason. Let's talk about this. And I was like, okay. I was like, and then he gave me a very stern uh, but polite lecture on everything that was wrong with the book from his perspective. And I just counteracted all of his arguments. Do you think he had actually so read it? Or... I, that was the first thing I asked. Is like, have you read it? He's like, yeah, I've read it a couple of times. And I can tell you're actual fans, but, but you're the worst kind of fans because you want to tear down your, your heroes. And I was like, well, isn't the first tenement of punk rock to kill your idols? And he was like, yeah. oh, yeah, okay. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I don't know. He was a nice guy. We talked a lot extensively about it. And uh, I think he just comes from the standpoint of kind of like Glenn Danzig, that he's so enamored with his hero, Glenn Danzig. He doesn't have a sense of humor about him. And he... And, he was a huge Glenn Danzig mm-hmm. fan. I mean, there's there's no surprise. Yeah, he mentioned he looked up to him like a father figure. So yeah. like, I could understand that, you know, super fans not getting it. But but I also think, you know, you know, what was so great about it is that there's no there's no reasonable assumption in any reality <laughs> that either one of these guys aren't just like the macho heterosexual <laughs> guys, you know, that um, that if it's afraid, if there's this fear of, of being labeled gay or something, that it would seem like, well, yeah, but no one really thinks that. Like, no one even kind of thinks that. You right. know, it's like, that's why it's funny. It's really funny because, yeah. you know, it, it's like, you know, the, the Eddie Murphy sketch about the honeymooners. Right. You know, from back in the raw days. Yeah. That clearly, you know, no one ever thought that, you know, Ralph Cramden and um, and his sidekick were lovers. And that's right. what made that sketch funny. Yeah. And so what was a surprise in hearing, like, the really negative feedback um, from people I know that had, had known Glenn. And then we were kind of like, oh, well, you know, I've, 
I've done business with Glenn over the years. You know, he was right. really kind of pivotal to me <laughs> dealing art in a lot of ways. Yeah, and then you gave me a big art show. <laughs> yeah, then I gave you a big art show. And I, and I was sort of thinking like, well, you know, maybe now he'll look at it a different way. That's what I was hoping. Maybe he'd show up, but no. There was no chance of that. No. Yeah. And, um, and, and employees were banned from coming to the show. And, oh, yeah. And um, I have um, upstairs oh, in my collection this amazing drawing that Tom did of Henry and Glenn looking at the show. It's a very meta drawing of them at the show looking at the piece that is the cover of Henry and Glenn Forever <laughs> and Ever. And um, it's drawn very much in the Archie kind of style. And Glenn is, is kind of double back saying... Why would they do this? Which is apparently a quote. Yeah. Like a direct quote. Yeah, apparently from when he found out about it the first time. Yeah. And the last time we did the show here, Hart Fisher, who had um, written for Verotic, mm -hmm. came to the show and thought it was hilarious. Yeah. And thought it was a lot of fun. Yeah, I've met a few, a few, uh, a lot of people that have worked with him. That and Howie like, they're and like, Todd. Don't, they're like, don't tell him. I, you know, yeah. Don't tell anybody I, I met you, but I like your comics. I'm like, all right, that's cool. <laughs> so Henry likes it, uh, apparently. He mentioned it in his LA Weekly article a year ago. Yeah, he's like, he said something not like, like this. He's like, I've, I've never read it, but I've seen the cover and I, I think it's a hilarious concept. So Yeah, yeah. We were hoping he was going to come down and, and actually, it was supposed to get the pick of the week in in the weekly that week, mm -hmm. and um, and it didn't. And it was funny because Johnny Angel said at the at the editors meeting, you know, hey, wouldn't it be fun? Because Henry writes for the weekly, yeah. And he's like, wouldn't it be fun if we could laugh at ourselves, expecting everybody to kind of giggle? And it was dead silence. That the new direction, since it's been taken over by the um, Village Voice, is a little bit more corporate than what he was perhaps used to. Right. It was supposed to, I mean, we did great anyways, but it yeah. was it was um, supposed to get the pick of the week, and then, you know, Panic Collective did the the pink half skull, half yeah. leg, and that it's, became a, a meme. It's just fun. I mean, people get really scared to upset their their idols, and I just think it's it's a silly concept. They're yeah. they're human beings like the rest of us. And, you know, if if they put themselves out there like I am doing right now, you know, you can make fun of me. Yeah, <laughs> for, yeah. Like, it, or you can love, I mean, whatever, you know, or you can love me and make fun of me, you know. But I don't know, some people just don't, don't agree with that concept, but that's fine. We're going to take yeah. a quick break to hear from our sponsors, and then we'll come back. We'll talk to Tom Neely about, you know, winning in Ignatz and uh, working on a beloved title that almost everybody knows and um, what it was like and and all that type of thing. But uh, we'll be right back afterward from our sponsors. Melt You, the school at Meltdown where they teach you the skills to make comic books. Some of the current classes include creating comics, drawing comics for kids, and the art of inking. Coming soon, there will be classes for short film writing, drawing basics, and kids make zines. Go to MeltComics.com and enroll now. Hello and welcome back to Pod Sequentialism with Matt Kennedy. I am your host, Matt Kennedy, and I have with me Tom Neely, who is uh, an Ignatz Award-winning uh, cartoonist, um, one of the principals behind the Henry and Glenn comics, and um, one of the creators of The Humans. Um, but what we're going to talk about, um, well, first we'll talk about The Blot, which was um, kind of your first foray into indie comics. Yeah, I'd been doing self-published zines and stuff for a while, but that was my first uh, significant graphic novel that I self-published um, in 2007. So, um, and then you yeah. find at a certain point, I mean, you this is out there and it's in shops, and then you must get an email or a letter from 
some award committee saying, "Hey, you know, you're you're on the nom list." Oh, uh, yeah, um, yeah. That was it's it's a awards show that it's an award that's put on in conjunction with the uh, Small Press Expo in Bethesda, Maryland. Mm-hmm. And um, I had submitted it to you know well, they have like an open submissions thing for for all publishers. So I'd submitted it to them in hopes that I'd get in. But yeah, I got nominated for the Ignatz Award in 2007 and uh, ended up winning it. So so that was that was cool. That was like, I mean, for in the indie comic scene, that's like that's like one of the bigger awards for, especially for like self-published books and small it's press. It's like a Kirby. Yeah. And uh, so that did really well for, for that book and kind of put me on the map initially right. in, the, in the small press world. So. And that must have elevated your your presence among the quote-unquote legit publishers. Um, um, and we're not yeah. talking like Marvel DC necessarily, but right. definitely like Fanagraphics. And yeah, and I initially actually had, had the blot was going to be published by Top Shelf, um, but I ended up pulling out of the deal because I didn't really uh, agree with them on certain aspects of how it should be published um, and printed. So I uh, ended up self-publishing it. and But yeah, then it definitely... Uh, got the attention of the other of other publishers so um but i was it also like kind of instilled this like uh kind of hardcore diy self-publishing idea in me for a while that i i adhered to until for the next few years um that led me to my next graphic novel the wolf uh which unfortunately didn't have the success of the blot sales wise and ended up kind of sinking my self-publishing career But I will destroy you. <laughs> An aptly uh, named uh, publishing company, I guess, if that's the one that yeah. sinks you. But it's a great book. But I also think, um, you know, you're you're a big fan of heavy metal and punk, mm-hmm. and you also DJ and you do a great metal night on Tuesdays over mm-hmm. at Footsie's, yep. which is um, an Atwater bar, and it's kind of very well regarded for the um, the great music that they play there and the DJs that play, and it's it's not the typical stuff. And I think that the Wolf was really a project that that kind of shows. Like you've got your Norwegian black metal, <laughs> you know, you're kind of wearing it on your sleeve in yeah. a little bit of that. Yeah. At the, at the time, I'd like after the blot, I'd started making. I, I've always been interested in working with musicians, and I've been obsessed with music. So I've always tried to, you know, had a lot of friends that are in bands and stuff. And uh, and I, I got I became friends with um, good friends with the guys in the band Isis, mm-hmm. unfortunately named. Uh, band now luckily right. they broke up before what happens today but yeah yeah <laughs> but um i kind of got involved in that that world of like a lot of uh and they uh ran they were involved with hydrahead records and yep. ipecac records and became friends with a lot of like different bands around town and so yeah that book was definitely the wolf was definitely kind of influenced by a lot of like stuff that i was into at that time like a lot of black metal and <laughs> and uh alternative metal and stuff you know mm-hmm. so it was my attempt at making a a wordless like uh werewolf love story that's very dark and and uh i don't know i guess kind of gothic and stuff it's, in its, its own way but it's also it's it's very surrealistic too but yeah i mean th- there's a lot going on in that and i've always really enjoyed it and the um by choosing not to have a written narrative doesn't mean that there isn't a narrative that goes through it. I mean, a lot yeah, of that definitely. comes out of your discipline of being a sequential artist, mm-hmm. that um, telling that story in that way, and it's it's big full pages that tell a very a very specific tale. Right. It's like it's a 240-page book, I think, and mm-hmm. but it's only like one image per page, which I kind of uh, was very inspired by the old woodcut novelist like Lynn Ward mm-hmm. um, from the 20s and 30s, and uh, that's why I kind of like 
chose that style of like the one page per image to like really kind of think of it more less like comics and more like a sequential series of paintings that tells yeah. a complete novel. Um, so I actually called it, I think I called it a painted novel instead of a graphic novel when yeah. I was being pretentious. <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, but then the, when that, you know, that book didn't do so well sales-wise because it's a little bit weirder and it's it's also got some very triple uh, X moments in it. But, um, but that ended up leading me to like, you know, seeking out some like more uh, paying work and like cha- changing my direction in comics a bit mm-hmm. to refocus towards like more mainstream and, and getting taking it to the next level, I guess. And that ends up bringing you over to IDW and working on Popeye. Mm-hmm. And this was a very well-regarded relaunch. And one thing that's amazing, um, anybody who's unfamiliar with, with Tom Neely's work, and I'm sure that by now you've already Googled his name and you're checking stuff, but that um, Tom is really adept at a, capturing a number of different styles, um, which is not to say that he's a copyist. It's that he's really good at honing in on a classic style and kind of making it his own. You can see it quite literally page by page in, in some of the Henry and Glenn stuff um, with alternate covers that were... You know, there's there's the the Liefeld cover that's very much an mm-hmm. image cover. There's the um, Mac Rayboy World War II era cover. Uh, Jaime you know, Hernandez. Yeah, there's the Eleven Rockets cover. There's the Dan Klaus cover. <laughs> I mean, it's it's really paying tribute to a lot of different um, independent and um, classic um, superhero comic artists. Yeah. But that um, with Popeye, Popeye's a really special thing because comics like um, Popeye and Plastic Man were hugely influential on the fanographics crowd, if you will, the people who were doing comics that weren't superhero comics, but that were inspired by comics that had a superheroic element to it. Mm-hmm. Clearly, Popeye is is a superhero. He has a power. He eats spinach. He gets strong, and it lasts until the um, the digestion goes away, or whatever <laughs> it is, or the fight's over. Or the fight is over, really, because he wins. But um, that he's not considered your classic superhero. He's considered more of a a cartoon, more of a um, a comedic comic character. Mm-hmm. And certainly, those uh, those of us of a certain age grew up watching the Max Fleischer Popeye cartoons, yeah. being a little bit harder to see, but you could still see them every once in a while. In and among the Popeye cartoons that were running just on television in yeah, syndication, sixties ones that were running more often, yeah. And so you have that kind of really commercial thing of of the sixties that we kind of grew up around, and you'd, you'd picture as sort of like the Harvey comics, and then you had that that earlier style, mm-hmm. you know, the um the earlier Pete Seeger, yeah, yeah, and um and that he was really just tapped in his own thing. It's madcap. Mm-hmm. It's really, really off the wall. Yeah. And it, I remember reading someplace that Salvador Dali read his comics. Yeah. That he was a big fan of those comics because they're very, very strange. And yet I think that Dali thought that that's what regular comic books were. Right. When nothing else was like that. That's actually what kind of led me to back to, I mean, I like I grew up reading comics, but Growing up in Texas, I always just like read superhero comics because that's all I could get. But then when I was in art school in San Francisco, it was like reading about it. I mean, like Dolly um, and Picasso were also big comics fans. Like all those guys were. But especially uh, uh, Philip Guston was somebody that kind of like really brought me back to, to comics when I was like doing, trying to be a painter 
and being frustrated with art school and then was reading this biography of him and it talked about his love of comics and how that kind of brought him to his later phase figurative work where he started drawing the the weird clansmen and stuff mm-hmm. and uh and that kind of got me back into old comics again and and then also being in San Francisco introduced me to like the underground comics of Robert Crumb and everything but yeah <clears throat> but uh Popeye was something I always gravitated to as a kid I liked the co- the cartoons and then in college discovering the comic strips and realizing how amazing and bizarre they are and and the drawings are so great um yeah it's always been a big influence on me over on and so they they publish a couple of these mm-hmm. and they do really well mm-hmm. and this is again like and IDW is not wasn't at that point really a company that was known for veering too far outside of superhero yeah no they mostly i think they they, they do a lot of licensed properties but it's like transformers and stuff like that like all over and rocketeer i yeah. guess would have been maybe the the closest they do linear. a bunch of stuff, different stuff yeah i think it was um it might have been craig yo that like spearheaded this popeye relaunch uh and roger landridge was the writer for the series and they originally hired this artist bruce uh ozello i'm forgetting his last name um to do the series but apparently at some point they asked me to fill in for a backup story in issue two mm-hmm. and then and then offered me issue three and i worked on ended up a one complete issue and then i did one other short story after that so it was kind of short-lived the, the entire series lasted i think 10 issues mm-hmm. um and i worked on in in the first four which is collected in one volume now by adw but it was it was great. I mean, it was a difficult but really great job. I mean, and kind of a dream come true to get to work on Popeye and do a full issue. And I was always a fan of Roger Landridge's earlier work, so it was fun to work with him too. And so you were in the in the volume that you did entirely yourself. You were inking. You you were penciling, penciling, inking, inking lettering, hand lettering, and coloring, and coloring. Yeah. And so I got to ask. You know, you would think because there was a time when when people were doing superhero comics and fiction, and I, even as far as I know in, in the independent market, that if you you get your pages and half of the pages will go to the um, the penciler and half will go to the inker, and maybe the writer gets to keep one page. And writers generally get paid a slightly better than um, than pencilers mm-hmm. um, if they're the primary um, spearhead behind the project. And so that not many pages get split up that way. So by doing double, triple, quadruple duty, do you get paid four times? No. Uh, I don't think so, no. I mean, I wasn't getting paid enough, which is why I I couldn't stay on the book. Um, But, uh, yeah, I I don't know. Unfortunately, uh, comics... yeah, comics don't pay that well right now. Yeah. You know, page I mean, rates are not of, good. I mean, if you're at Marvel or DC, I'm sure you can make a good living. Or if you create a, a hit like Walking Dead, you can. But uh, but yeah, working, especially work for higher comics these days, the page rates are are really low. And mm-hmm. uh, and I I wasn't making ends meet while working on that book, so I had to leave it. Unfortunately, even though uh, like seemed like everybody was telling me they you know I was like one of their favorite artists on the book, but yeah. it just didn't work out. So. And so that was is one thirty five a page. So I can't remember exactly, but I think I was starting out at one twenty five, and they gave me a slight page bump to like one fifty after that. After yeah. I asked for it, but uh, it still wasn't working. You know, that much. I mean, that's basically, 
you know, if you're talking about penciling, inking, hand lettering, and coloring, you know, each page was like, I mean, you can't at best do like a, a page in one day. Right. Of that. Yeah, it's impossible. <laughs> it's like you're talking 14 hour days. And, well, that's why. And 24 pages that all have to be done in like three weeks. and Which is why in the, in the classic era, you know, Jack Kirby wasn't inking his own stuff. No. He would draw, and he would draw a lot. He was very prolific. He was almost stri- strictly a penciler. Yeah. So. And he would hand it off, and someone else would ink it. And yeah. if Vince Coletta inked it, he'd throw a fit because Vince would erase his detail. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, but that... um. You know, that that was just kind of the mold. Nowadays, you've got a couple of people that you can high contrast your pencils if they have that really thick line. Yeah. And um, they're working on blue on um, blue board or yeah. uh, with, they'll print out a blue line and then they'll ink the blue line. But even that, I mean, those guys do maybe 22 pages and they're, they're not lettering. That gets yeah. handed off. They're yeah. not coloring. That yeah. gets handed off. Yeah. And, I mean, these are guys that probably are professors and they teach at schools because there's no way that that page rates pay in their living. And that's kind of a problem with comics now. Yeah. 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 It's difficult. Um, Yeah. I don't don't know what the answer is. I mean, the, the companies, I don't think the companies are, the publishers are doing much better. Mm -hmm. Um, Some of them are, but uh, yeah, I don't know. I just don't know if there's that. I mean, having, you know, now I've jumped to doing a a series with image, the humans that I co-created, and I did the same thing. I was <clears throat> penciler, inker, hand lettering the whole thing, co-creator. Um, we did hire a colorist. Christina Coyantes worked on the book with me. Um, but, I mean, I, I prefer to ink and letter it on myself. I want all the artwork to be mine on the page. Yeah. So that, I don't think I'll ever not work that way. But uh, but you get a whole but bigger it's a whole piece much, of the pie. It's so much more work to do. And, yeah. Uh, well, when and, you're, but when even you're like part of the creative team, you, you get yeah. a bigger piece of that pie. I mean, this is images. General deal tends to be, as, as I understand it, that um, you have to cover the publishing on the first couple of issues. They distribute it for you, and then then they pay you back for it, or they 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 buy it as it goes, and then that deal changes to the point maybe where they're fronting the um, the publishing on each issue, and you are kind of a producer. And how you get that to them, they don't care as long as you deliver. Um, a cover-to-cover comic book. Yeah, it's not exactly that way on the on the like what they're covering thing, but but uh, I mean, yeah, they I mean, once they've chosen to do your book, they don't give us they let us do whatever we want. So right. We're uh, we decide everything that goes into the book, and you know we can ask for feedback or ask for an editor, but they they've trusted us to let us do our own thing and create our own mess for better or for worse. Yeah, know? yeah. <laughs> and uh, luckily they they seem to like us and have kept us going. So well, this mess seems to be doing pretty well because it's not just comics; they've bound volumes. Yep. And um, volume it's... one came out last year, and volume two will be out in March. So and it's got a following, and it's a good comic. Yeah, we've got a good cult cult following. So far, it's been, you know, we need we need it to grow, you know, because numbers are still not, you know, making a making money, but it is a strong cult hit. So yeah. we're doing. I'm really really happy about. It. It's been a lot of fun too. It's like the funnest book to draw. And one of the joys of of working with a company like Image is that you know going in that they've got their media connections. Mm-hmm. That um, part of what they do is that they find you other media, so that they're maybe out there on the on the prowl for. A video game, a television series, a movie, some other kind of life for the project, which then really feeds back into just like Walking Dead, where you have a hit that becomes something else, which makes it an even bigger hit. 
Yeah, that could be nice. Yeah, uh, yeah, we'll see. <laughs> I have no idea. I'm I'm just mostly focused on drawing the comics because that's my passion. But it would be nice if you know something like that came along and uh, you know helped me stay afloat <laughs> <laughs> right. while, while penciling and inking and everything and doing art so, shows and everything else yeah. and DJing and, and the whole nine yards. Yep. Well, the um. The humans is, is kind of a, a special case. And I remember when you were first talking about the concept and I was like, oh my God, you know, I've got this other ape thing that I'm thinking of too. And they're so very different mm-hmm. in that, um, that it's possible to have, um, that there's that much variety you can have with, with even in, within a very specific idea yeah. that there are a million directions you can go in no matter what that idea is. Right. I yeah. mean, you, you see it in comics where it's like, we have a guy who flies and he's got a lot of powers. Yeah. You're like, well, well that's Superman. It's like, but it isn't, you know, and there's like 25 completely different things. Yeah. And um, you've taken a concept where, and for those who aren't familiar, and I, I really, really suggest that you get a hold of humans. Um, you you can buy the the hard copies. I think you can subscribe digitally as well. I don't think I think now that the seri- the first miniseries is done, the subscription's over. But uh, it was a ten issue series. Um, first vol- first. Uh, well, actually, eleven issue series, including issue zero that we self published. Right, right. So then, volume one that came out last year collects issues zero through four, and volume two comes out in March, and it collects the rest of it five through ten. But the concept of the series is it takes place in a sort of Planet of the Apes type of world, but it's obviously like it's it's pretty established. They've had civilization for yeah. as long as like America's been around. Well, the, the initial. The initial concept that, you know, we told people was like, it's like Planet of the Apes meets Easy Rider. Which um, is perfect. But uh, it, it's, yeah, which it is. And, and But people like automatically assumed it had like this sci-fi element, like, oh, what happened to change the world? Like, no, we just simply... Like AIP movie. All we did was flip it. It's 1970s Bakersfield, California. The main character came back from Vietnam. It's the only difference is that apes are the dominant species and humans are animals and used as like slaves and cattle and... And, uh, uh, like they fight them in the rings, like dog fights, um, mm-hmm. stuff and the, like that. So, and, and the humans are a motorcycle gang yeah, called the humans. centered around a motorcycle gang called the humans, but they're, but apes. they're, they're all apes. Yeah. So, and the, the, the initial idea came from, uh, my writer, Keenan Marshall Keller. He had, uh, written it as a, a treatment, as an idea for a screenplay years ago that he thought he'd never be able to make. So, mm-hmm. uh, he was telling me about it one day when I was like thinking like, you know, what's my next project going to be? And as soon as he said, uh, you know, apes on motorcycles, I was like, that's all I've ever wanted to draw. (laughs) (laughs) I never knew it, but that's all I ever wanted to draw. It's like that Beavis moment. Yeah. This is the greatest thing I've ever seen. Exactly. (laughs) But, um, and it's been a hell of a lot of fun. You know, we've, we've thrown, you know, we've, we've been trying to like bring, bring back like underground comics to like sort of the new mainstream of image and, and, uh, you know, it's it's raw and dirty and and it's uh inspired by exploitation films and the comics of like S. Clay Wilson and Spain Rodriguez and all those uh great sixties underground artists who were you know, act, some of them were actually bikers. Yeah. Too, so. S. Clay Wilson definitely was. Yeah. The um and of course Robert Williams was a kind of a hot rod guy. Yeah. But the um the interesting thing about this being at at image now 
is that Jim Valentino, who was the editor-in-chief at Image for a really long time, was the big proponent behind, hey, let's not just do, do superhero comics. Right. Like, he got, um, you know, Brian Michael Bendis, who was the architect of the Marvel Universe, mm-hmm. uh, got his foot in the door of comics doing Sam and Twitch. Mm-hmm. And, um, and Valentino loved it. And he's like, it wasn't doing big numbers, and some people thought it was just, like, Fish Police or something like that. And he's like, you gotta read this. Like, this guy's really good. There's something here. And then he ended up doing Torso, I think, and Jinx, mm-hmm. which were both not superhero series. They're, you know, detective mm-hmm. fiction. Yeah. Done as comics. Um, I know Torso was in development for a very long time. Um, friend Don Murphy was going to produce a version of it at one point that had David Fincher attached as a director mm-hmm. and, and Matt Damon attached as a star. Mm-hmm. And it still went no place. Yeah. That that wasn't enough. <laughs> To get a $60 million film Sometimes made. Sometimes stuff doesn't get any place. <laughs> I don't but, know, yeah. But now at Image, a lot of their bread and butter is non-superhero. Yeah. I mean, or at least non-traditional. I think they've pretty much become like the dominant like genre comics publisher. They're mostly like sci-fi and detectives and like mm-hmm. adventure and like zombies. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's all over the place. There's, there's still some superhero stuff, but uh, it seems like the dominant stuff is like, is all genre based now. And you know, and they they took a chance on us being like even weirder genre than, yeah. than what they're used to, um, and I hope they're they're still happy with it. <laughs> I think they have to be in a yeah. lot of ways, and and even at any, no matter what your endeavor is, whether you're a film company or a publishing company, you want to have certain flag. You know, they call tentpole releases a, a right. release that you you know you're going to make money on, and you stick your your tentpole in the middle of the, yeah, of the, the right. parking lot and you fly your flag up. But there's also prestige release and yeah. stuff that you you just want to be a part of. You want to be in the publishing of. And yeah. I got to think that on top of it being really great and really different, that having you with them has got to be a little bit of a feather in their cap too, because you you are really big in certain circles as an indie guy, and yeah. you do a lot of conventions. Mm-hmm. And tell me about that. Like, how do you figure out? You know, we're gonna go. We're gonna go on tour. We're gonna do a humans tour. We're gonna do a bunch of conventions. How does that work out? uh it's just kind of i don't know it's like i i grew up around punk rock and metal it's like your album's out go tour so like that's that's just kind of like what my mentality's always been like i'm putting something out i'm not gonna just wait for the world to discover me i'm gonna go out and meet the world and put it in their face yeah (laughs) you know and i've been doing that since i've been touring conventions since like 2001 2000 i mean i was going to conventions earlier than that but really like hitting the circuit what circuit do you do you do now? Like, if you know your it's changing. Your start. It's, it's changing a lot now that we're with Image. Um, I used to do most of the indie festivals all over the country, including like SPX and Ape and uh, Linework and uh, TCAF and Toronto and like all those. Um, uh, this past year, we've been trying some new stuff, so uh, trying to you know put our dip our foot into the more mainstream world, and so and uh, I've always Wizard done world, San Diego Comic Con, but now I've added in like. Uh, WonderCon and Heroes Con in Charlotte, North Carolina is like my new favorite show. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, what else? We're gonna ch- go to Emerald City Con in, in Seattle. Um, so it's I'm trying out a new a new circuit now, which is a little difficult to uh, get in as far as like getting tables <laughs> because they don't know who I am because I'm right. an indie guy. Right. But um. But uh, once we're there, we're having a great time and we, we do really well. And and uh. We've even had like people cosplaying as as the humans and Henry and Glenn coming up to our tables. Oh, that's awesome! That's great. <laughs> and uh, um, I was, you know, the second guest on the program was Steve Bissett, who's um, 
you know, uh, obviously a huge hero of mine and, and someone that mine I knew too, when I was yeah. really young, you know, I, yeah. I think I met him when I was 12 and, and, um, now I've had the, I'm in the most glorious position, you know, from my point of view, I'm like, my God, you know, I've, I've, he's asked me to write, um, four words, introductions for things that he's done. And I'm like, this That's is awesome. the best thing that ever happened, you know, yeah. like the greatest thing in the world. And he talked about how conventions were such an integral part of building up the audience and that now he just, he almost can't be bothered because he just doesn't know what, know how to go about it. And he, granted, he's not like publishing a monthly comic, but that used to know where to go. Like you'd be, yeah. well, I'm going to start out at BossCon, then we'll do New York Comic Con, then we'll do, you know, so um, much down at Atlanta, you do a different con. con every week now, if you want, if you could afford to travel. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's yeah, you the You could lose money part. every week doing, yeah, doing cons. And so he's like, you know, Mid-Ohio Con was always like, you got to do Mid-Ohio Con. I don't think that convention exists. It has, yeah. I don't think it's existed for a long time, but like, that at one of the, the at the middle Ohio con was like the convention where Dave Sim pulled up in a limousine and called up um, Toddleben and Bissett and I think Alan Moore and said I just thought you'd want to see how the DC executives came here today <laughs> and started he planted that seed of independent publishing yeah and um, which which they all pretty much followed and that you know you read if you read blogs at all or if you read even just like Facebook posts um, Jimmy Palmiotti has talked, he talks a lot, he spends a lot of time talking about um, conventions and which conventions to do and asking people which ones to do and, mm-hmm. and then going and finding out that it's like someone who was a fan who did not know what was involved in, in throwing a convention and oh, you don't have a green those, room yeah. and you don't have you know, a roster listing what's going on and all this stuff. Yeah, no, I've been to a few of those that are, uh, yeah. But um, I don't know. Yeah, I, I've been to every, I've been to conventions it was like literally like four people in a in a rec hall and then and, and no people in attendance at all and have and you know i've done san diego comic-con so it's like yeah. it's all over the place um and it's always a crapshoot but it's just kind of about i don't know I, I just try to keep in touch with like what all my other cartoonist friends are doing and where they're going and and we talk a lot about like where you make better money and where you don't and and then you just figure out what you can it. do tra- travel-wise. You know, it's the travel is the hardest part now because it's getting yeah. so expensive. So you I mean, want to like, make sure that you you can like, sell enough books to make it worth your while. Yeah, I mean, like like I can't go to I can't afford to go to TCAF, one of my favorite shows, Toronto Comic Art Festival. I can't afford to get there anymore. It's just too yeah. expensive, and I can't make my money back there. You know, if it costs you twelve hundred dollars to get somewhere, like you got to sell at least fifteen hundred dollars to <laughs> buy your food while you're there. You right. Know? So, but you mentioned something and it's a really important thing and it's something that I've always stressed as a gallery director with artists. It's like you've got to network with other artists. Yeah. You've you got to have those friendships and you do. I mean, you, you've got your collective, you know, you got the people in Igloo Tornado who all have different kind of, mm-hmm. some of, are based in completely other parts of the country, um, some of whom are in completely different walks of life and so they have a different approach to it. But that if you're not, if you're publishing, whether you're self-publishing or, off, or you're you're kind of working on indie books, you want to make sure that you're forging good friendships with other people who are doing what you do and not seeing them as necessarily um, competition that you're fighting for the same dollar. Right. Because you'll get great information out of them. And honestly, if it works for them, it should work for you. And if it works for you, it should work for them within a certain, you know, yeah. um, percentage of failure. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've always been one to like, wanted to like foster community uh, around other artists and, and uh, work together with with other people, and that's always been an interest to me. That led me to like Igloo Tornado, and then I, I worked with Sparkplug Comics out of Portland for years, and 
and uh, you know now collaborating with with Keenan and Christina on the humans and stuff. Mm-hmm. But it's it's always been about like you know meeting people everywhere I go and and just keeping in ta- contact with artists and writers and different people everywhere. And yeah, it's it's been it's awesome. I mean, I got friends in every city now because I go to conventions all the time. Which is very similar to Rollins. I probably have a couple of enemies of... too, but uh, <laughs> yeah. mostly friends. <laughs> also very, very similar to Rollins' Tales of Touring America yeah. and the network that they had set up in punk rock um, to bring it kind of full circle. Yeah, um, it's very much that. I mean, sleeping on floors and punk houses and everything, it's the same thing for cartoonists sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that's a good place to leave. So um, I want to I want to really thank Tom for coming on the show. And I want, I want you to shout out some websites um, you know, some Instagram accounts, you know, where can people find you? Um, my main website, which needs to be updated is I will destroy you.com. Uh, the humans website is humansforlife.com. Is that humans for the number four or no, F O R? Okay. Which we think is funny cause it sounds like a pro-life site. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, and then, uh, let's see my Instagram and Twitter and I think Tumblr are is all under, I will destroy Tom. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. So, uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. I'm, I'm mostly on Instagram because I like, uh, I don't really like Twitter as much anymore. Facebook is getting turning into like weird scrapbooking for old people with babies. Yeah, so yeah. <laughs> Instagram is where you can find me posting stuff almost every day. Like, so. Perfect. Well, again, thank you, Tom Neely. And uh, we hope you've enjoyed this episode of Pod Sequentialism. I am Matt Kennedy, and we'll, uh, we'll talk again soon. Thanks.